0: We're going to be in Matthew. No surprise. We're reaching the end of our study. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up uh, our study of complete transformation following the life of Jesus uh, on Easter. So we're kind of building up, moving towards towards Easter, trying to keep pace with the Easter story over these next uh, next few weeks. Uh, so open up your Bibles uh, to, to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 22 today. We have a very, very long section today. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, through uh, all of chapter 23. So let me read this to you, and then let me tell you where we're going to be going this morning. Chapter 22, verse 15. Now just remember that Jesus has been interacting with the religious leaders, spent most of his ministry in Galilee, now he's in Judea. Uh, He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, And and from then on, he's been confronted by uh, the religious leaders. So that's what's happening in our passage this morning, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians' teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? And is, it, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You still with me? Still awake? Okay, we're about halfway through. Hang in there. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their... How do you say that word? I, I looked it up, but I can't remember now. I know we've got some seminary people in the room here. How do you say that word? Phylacteries? I like it. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and anyone who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First, clean out the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All of this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your chicken, your chicken. There is a chicken, but it's not coming up just yet. How long, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. From this passage this morning, I'm going to preach to you from the title set free for a purpose set free for a purpose. This is a long text. that Maybe seems a little bit complicated, it does to me, there's a lot going on, and would you agree that it's kind of a heavy passage? Do you feel encouraged reading this? Not so much. I want you to know that it is actually my goal this morning to encourage you. I think that there is a lot going on in this passage, there are some heavy words that Jesus says, but I want you to know that it is my goal this morning to actually have you walk away encouraged by what we're going to find Uh, In this passage, we're going to celebrate communion at the end of our time this morning. And I, I hope that today will be a day that you can come forward and break bread, receive communion as one who is rejoicing about what God has done for you. Amen. Um, So, so Tyler, go ahead and put up this first slide here. I I want to kind of break the text down for you so you can kind of see a little bit uh, what I think is going on here. The. The Matrix. Um, So this is our passage, Matthew uh, chapter 22 through Matthew chapter 23. That's the whole thing. I I see three movements here. And and I'll tell you why it's important for us to see this in just a second. The first movement I see is Jesus' final test. He's been tested by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the religious leaders ever since he stepped foot in Jerusalem. These are the last times that Jesus will be tested by them until he's arrested. This is it. These are the final tests that Jesus faced. He faced a test in ethics, theology, and law. And then the second movement in our passage is a power shift. A shift of authority and power from the religious leaders who've been asking all the questions to Jesus, who then begins asking the questions. And then the final movement is one of judgment and justice. We see Jesus give instructions to the crowd and the disciples first. Then he turns his, his attention right to the religious leaders. Woe to you, he says. Did you catch how many times? Seven times. Woe to you, woe to you, you hypocrites. And then finally he wraps up with justice for the world. I want you to see this framework because it's in understanding this and then in asking why is it that Jesus is so angry at the religious leaders that we actually get to what I think is our main thrust this morning, that you and I have been set free for a purpose. We need to see this framework. We need to understand why Jesus is so angry at the Pharisees. And then we will begin to see that you and I have been set free for a purpose. So let's move through this very, very quickly. And then we'll spend some more time at the end of our passage this morning. These three movements. First, the final test. Jesus is approached by some of the religious leaders and they give him uh, um, a test in ethics. They say, uh, Jesus, should we pay the tax to Caesar or not? Now, um, this was a trick question, as all of the religious leaders' questions were, because there was no good answer for Jesus to give. It was a lose-lose scenario. If Jesus were to say, yes, pay the tax, that would have infuriated all of the Jews who hated paying the tax to the foreign occupiers, Rome, you see. But if Jesus had said, no, don't pay the tax, now who's he in trouble with? Rome. He, he's offended those with the most power. It's a lose-lose sort of question. This tax was imposed by Rome. It was known as the poll tax, and, uh, and, and they hated paying it. Jesus asks them uh, for a, a coin. He says, did you have one of these coins that you would pay the tax with? And Tyler, let's see the picture of this. It's a denarius. It has the the likeness of the Caesar on one side. And then an inscription on the other that would say something along the lines of Caesar, son of God, high priest. Does that language sound familiar to you? This was an offensive coin to the Jews. They would have said it actually uh, was Uh, 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 blasphemous for them to even carry this coin because it had an image of another deity on it. Someone claiming to be the son of God. And so Rome actually appeased the Jews and they minted a copper coin that they could pay the poll tax with. They didn't have to carry around this sacrilegious coin with the Caesar's face on it. But You see what happens in the story here. Jesus says... Do you have a denarius? Could you show me the coin that you're talking about? As if he doesn't know. And the religious leader said, well, yes, I happen to have one right here. Now, you have to kind of step into the story here for just a minute, but, but picture Jesus going, oh, you, you have one of these coins, do you? Religious leader? Huh. This coin, the one with Caesar's image on it. Oh, you have one of those in your pocket. The one that says that Caesar's the son of God. Oh, that's interesting. do give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. do give to God what is God's. And they're amazed at this interaction. They're humiliated is what happens, right? The second test is, uh, 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 first is a test in ethics, and then it's a test in theology, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and, and, and Matthew, uh, like a good author, he tells us that the Sadducees are a religious sect who don't believe that there's a resurrection. They're in they're a minority. The Pharisees, they believe in a resurrection. Jesus has hinted at his own belief in an afterlife, in a resurrection. But the Sadducees, they say, no, when you're dead, you're dead. So everybody knows this, and the Sadducees come up to Jesus, and they tell him this story. They say there's a, a man, he was married, his wife died, Excuse me, the the husband died. She then remarried his brother and so on seven times. This is odd, right? This wouldn't happen now for most of us. Would you agree? Which you're okay with, I'm guessing. Those of you who are married. But this was actually pretty common practice. It came from the Old Testament. It was a way of, of a family continuing both their lineage, but also their inheritance. Because the inheritance was passed down through the male line. So if that line didn't continue, that inheritance would be lost. So it's a common practice, a common understanding. They've taken it to an absurd level. Seven times, Jesus. Can you believe it? So Jesus, when they get to heaven, who's going to be married to who? Now, they're not really interested in heaven because they don't believe in the resurrection. Just like the Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to humiliate Jesus somehow. What does Jesus do? He says, well, you're wrong. You're missing it on two accounts. First, you're denying the power of God. Because you're thinking that heaven is going to be like what you're experiencing now. You're not giving God credit that all of eternity in the presence of God might actually be a little bit different than what you're experiencing now. Secondly, you don't know your Bible. Woo! Offensive to the Sadducee, you don't know your Bible. As we see, Jesus says, that God is the God not of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. And so if they're still living in the presence of God, surely there must be a resurrection of the dead. A test in ethics, a test in theology, and then a test in the law. The Pharisees come back to Jesus and, and they give it one more shot. They say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandments? There are 613 commandments at this time. There's common conversations among Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Which is the greatest? Or what are the heaviest, the weightiest commands? Or how would you summarize all 613 of these commandments? How would you do it? And these were always contentious arguments, right? Because if you said, well, this is the greatest commandment, or this is the best way to sum up all 613 of the commandments, you were bound to forget something, leave something out, and so offend to somebody. So again, it's a trick question. They want to humiliate Jesus. They want to uh, undercut his power, his authority. What does Jesus say? He says, well, the the greatest commandment is is, is love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It would be very hard for anybody to disagree with this because Jesus is here quoting the Shema, the Hebrew call to worship that good Jews would recite in the morning and in the evening. So who's going to disagree with this? This is a good starting point. This is a good way to begin summarizing the law. He probably could have left it there and been okay. But what does he do? He says, and the second. They haven't asked for a second, have they? But the second is like it. Love others as much as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we've seen from Matthew that our neighbor is who? Everyone, everyone. Here, Jesus says, if if you want to love God, if you want to summarize the commandments, then you could you could say that you love God in the context of loving everybody. There's no one who you will not love, no one who you are not called to love, no one who is so far beyond you that you cannot love them. You want to understand all of the law, all 613 commandments, Jesus says, understand this. You love God in the context of loving others. And that's it. You see what our our text says, that that was was the last of the questions that Jesus was asked. uh, There's an image that I have of of the, the religious leaders leaning in towards Jesus They're trying to to prove him wrong. They're trying to take away his authority. And every time Jesus answers a question, they get pushed farther back. Until they're just done. They they realize that this is pointless because they, they walk away from every one of these interactions looking foolish in front of the crowd. So they're done. And so now we reach the second movement in our text where there's this shift of power from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders of the people, the priests. A shift of power from them to Jesus because now it's not the religious leaders asking the questions. Jesus asks the questions. Now, this may seem a little cryptic at first, but listen to it. Jesus says, what do you say about the Christ? Whose son is he? This is an easy, this is a softball of a question. Whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? The son of David, they say. It's an easy answer. In fact, son of David and Messiah were interchangeable. They were synonyms. You could say the Christ or you could say the son of David. And everybody knew you were talking about the same one. The person who would come in the lineage of David to liberate God's people. We've said this over and over again from foreign oppression to bring home the exiles and to restore right worship in the temple. This was the Christ. This was the Messiah. This was the son of David. He would come from the line of David. It's an easy question that Jesus tosses to the religious leaders. They're like, ask us something hard. This is easy. It's complicated a little bit because Jesus has been showing that he believes he is the Messiah since he's been in Jerusalem, hasn't he? He rode in on a donkey as a conquering king on a colt that had never been ridden before. Hosanna, Hosanna, the branches are laid before him. People take off their jackets so he can walk over. The children, remember, the children praise him. And Jesus says, yeah, it's not just that they're praising who you think is the Messiah. They're actually praising and welcoming the very son of God. So, when Jesus asks whose son is the Messiah, there's tension in the air because the religious leaders know you're claiming to be this Messiah. You see? Whose son is the Messiah? Son of David. Jesus pushes back. How is it then that David, this is King David, of course, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? How is it that King David, speaking by the Spirit, prophesies, looks forward to the Messiah, and calls this one who will be his son, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. How is it that he calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? What is Jesus doing here? Besides just... Messing with them. Because I think he is. I think he's having some fun. They're all like, I don't, what? Never thought about it like that. But what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying, look, King David, King David looked ahead by the Holy Spirit and saw the Messiah coming, and he called that Messiah, not his son. What did he call him? My Lord. How is it possible, Jesus says, that the greatest king that Israel ever knew would call the the Messiah, the Christ, his Lord? It's his son. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying the Messiah, the Christ, is more than you've expected him. You expected him to come as a liberator in the line of David, defeat the Romans, cleanse the temple, bring the exiles home. Jesus has been saying over and over again, but it's so much bigger than that. The role of the Messiah, the vocation of the Messiah, of the Christ is so much bigger. So much so that David looks ahead and says, my Lord, my Lord, worships him. Once again, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is more, is greater than you expected, the very Son of God. So here, here's, this, here's this movement. The Pharisees have been attacking, they've been questioning, and now Jesus asserts his authority. Jesus steps up and finally, the Messiah, the Son of God, the power has shifted now. We begin to see why Jesus is going to be arrested, don't we? Because the Pharisees, Sadducees, they cannot tolerate this, this kind of claim. And So there is a shift of power where Jesus is now, I would say, having the upper hand, having his way with the religious leaders. So now we get to judgment and justice. Put that framework up there one more time. And I'll just give a very brief summary here, and then we're going to dig in this together. We see first that Jesus gives instructions to the disciples in the crowd. The power has shifted. Jesus is now the one with the authority. He moves from being questioned to being the questioner, and he turns to the crowds who are all around him and his 12 disciples, and he basically says what? Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't do it from there he turns his attention to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, the religious leaders and he says woe are you. Woe is you. Woe, woe is all of all y'all. You are, in, you are in trouble. Right? And then the passage wraps up with Jesus speaking both words of judgment and justice for the world. So we have here the framework, and and now we get to Jesus' harsh language. And would you agree it's harsh language to the Pharisees? Yes? Would you agree that this is the harshest that Jesus has been thus far, Matthew? Yes? This is mean Jesus. Yes? Yeah. This is not the Jesus we tend to think about very much, is it? This is not fuzzy, cuddly Jesus. This is not Jesus in my corner doing what I want Jesus to do for me. This is something bigger. This is another side of Jesus. This is the Son of God. And he has some hard things to say so we see this framework we see jesus being questioned besting the questions and now leaning in and taking the authority as the son of god from the religious leaders and he now says these incredibly devastating things to to israel's religious leaders and the question we need to ask is why why is he so upset why is he so angry why these words of judgment In order to answer this, we have to actually go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. In order for us to understand why Jesus is so upset, we look here at the story of Israel being liberated from slavery, from captivity. In Egypt. Many of you know the story. The people had been in captivity. God had heard their cry. He had sent Moses to rescue them, led them out of the uh, 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 captivity through the Red Sea. And now, three months into their freedom, this is what we find. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be a kingdom you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites the people have been let free set free liberated from captivity from bondage from slavery God chooses this very evocative imagery. He says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I rescued you from oppression like an eagle. I swooped down and picked you up and carried you to myself. You have been set free. You have been liberated. Nothing could stop God from rescuing God's people when God decided it was time. Nothing could stop God, not a stuttering Moses. You remember the story of Moses saying, not me, Lord, I can't even speak. Not an inept stuttering Moses, not a ruthless Pharaoh, not 600 of Egypt's best chariots, not the Red Sea, not a dry and desolate desert, not a battle with the Amalekites that happens just before this passage. Nothing would stop God. From rescuing God's people when God was ready to do so. God said, I swooped down like an eagle and snatched you away from Egypt, liberating you, setting you free. God told Moses, "I, I, I saw the misery of my people. And the scripture says, so I came down to rescue them. I came down like an eagle to rescue them. I came down to bring you to myself. I came down to liberate you from everything and everyone that had enslaved you. God came down like an eagle and rescued his people. And brought him, brought them to himself, liberated. But the passage goes on and says, now that you have been rescued, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. I've rescued you, I've liberated, I've set you free. And now you will be for me a kingdom of priests. In the desert, God tells his people that they have been set free. And this is important for a purpose. They have been set free to be God's priests to the whole world. The Israelites weren't simply uh, liberated from something. They weren't simply liberated to something. They were liberated for something. You see this. They were liberated from captivity in Egypt. They were liberated to the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey. But more than that, they were liberated for something, to be a nation of priests to the world. This is God's language to Abraham. When he first comes to Abraham and he says, I know it doesn't look like it, but Abraham, you're going to have a huge family who will be a great nation. Why? To bless the world. Israel, I've liberated you like an eagle rescuing you from Egypt for a purpose. You will be for me as a nation of priests to the world. You will show my glory to the entire world. You will testify with your words, with your actions, by the way your nation lives, that a God exists who is good, who is actively rescuing the world. You will bring those who were far from me near to me Israel, I have rescued you, set you free, so that, so that, the world will know my glory, so that the world will be set free, so that the world will know what it is to be reconciled to their God. They were set free from something, to something, and for, Purpose. If you think about it, the story of the nation of Israel was meant to be really, really simple. Actually, our God rescued us from captivity so that we can display the glory of God to the world. How's that for a simple story? We were rescued to display God's glory. This is this is their vocation. This is their identity. We were slaves. We are now free to show God's glory to the world. That's it. Everything else comes around that. And yet the plot of this story, as you and I know, was often lost. And God had to send prophets. And these prophets would come to the nation of Israel, and they would usually say one of two different things. One, you've become exactly like everyone else. In other words, you've chosen a new form of the old slavery. Become just like everybody else, Israel. Or, or you've turned in on yourself. You've become exclusive. You have forgotten your purpose to bless the world. And Jesus has referenced these prophets, hasn't he? Even last week in the parables, we saw Jesus reference the prophets who come to the nation and who persecuted, are chased off, or are killed. Unfortunately, this becomes a part of Israel's history, Israel's story. They were liberated, they were set free for a purpose, and yet too often this purpose was lost. Jesus has bested every one of the religious leaders' tests. He has has silenced them with his claim to be the Messiah, who is also the Son of God. The groundwork has been laid. And, And from this ground, Jesus now judges the religious leaders. Why? For forsaking the purpose of their liberation. If the purpose of the nation of Israel was to be set free to demonstrate the glory of God to the world, Jesus is angry because they have forsaken the purpose of their freedom. You see, these are the religious leaders claiming to speak for God, claiming to represent the nation of Israel. They are the ones who Jesus comes to and says, you have forsaken the reason, the purpose of your freedom. How have they done this? I I think this is what the seven woes in our passage are this morning. They they show us, they give us a window into how these leaders, speaking on behalf of the people, claiming to speak for God, have forsaken the purpose of their freedom. Now, uh, before we get to these seven woes, uh, we need to say that uh, we need to pay attention to this language. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees. Any Pharisees or Sadducees in the room today? No. We live in a different context, a different culture. We don't have sort of these combination religious, political leaders who represent us before God, do we? No. And so it's a little bit easy for us to maybe be like, oh, Pharisees, you really got it handed to you by Jesus. The problem is that when God speaks to Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, you will be for me a priest. What does he say? My people, all of them, will be for me as a kingdom of priests. Now, there were prophets and there were priests who had their function within the nation of Israel. But God's intention, God's purpose was always that the entire nation as free people, would show God's glory to the world. It was for everybody. Uh, In our our passage this morning, I would say that Jesus actually reaffirms this when he's talking to his disciples and to the crowd. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Okay, So he kind of sets it up and then jump into verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And he goes on from there. In other words, I'm calling out for myself a new nation of priests. Where you are all family, brothers, sisters. And so we would do well to listen to Jesus' language. Yes, it was directed to the Sadducees and to the Pharisees. But can we leave room for the fact that maybe this is, maybe for us too. Because we don't have one Pharisee that we can say, ooh, this is for you, do we? We don't have a group of religious leaders. We can, No, we believe as a church that God is calling out a new nation, a new kingdom of priests, as we say in our church, an authentic community, and that it is all of us who have been set free for the purpose of showing God's glory to the world. Amen? All of us. So let's listen to Jesus' language and hear what he has To say to us this woe language, it's a little bit uh, archaic. Does anybody say woe regularly? Do you say woe to you to anybody? Do you? That's good. (laughs) I don't think you should. I I put this in my own language because I wanted to try to pull this into maybe a bit of, of a clearer focus for us this morning. Tyler, I think we have some of these up here. So so the first one is, woe to you. And again, this is in my own language. You obstruct people from the kingdom. You can go back and forth. If you have your Bible open, you can look down and you can see if I'm tracking well with this text or not. But I think Jesus is here saying, woe to you. You obstruct people. You keep people. You hinder people from entering the very kingdom of God that has come because God has sent his Messiah. Again, we've said this over and over again as we've studied Matthew. Because Jesus has come, the Messiah has come. Because the Messiah has come, the kingdom of heaven has come. Because the kingdom of heaven has come, it is now open and available to everyone. And Jesus says, rather than ushering people into what God is doing, you are obstructing them. You're making it difficult for them. Number two, woe to you because you convert people to a religion of death. You convert people, not to life, but to something else. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is, do you remember, life. You see, Jesus' invitation into the kingdom is one of freedom, is one of liberation. Jesus says, You are zealous, you travel around the world, but you convert people to something heavy and burdensome, and that ultimately leads only to death. Number Number three. You make trivial religious rules that obscures God's glory. Now, maybe we can begin to relate to this one a little bit. There's a thinking, and we've talked about this uh, before. There's a thinking in many Christians' minds that says, my acceptance comes from keeping God's rule. I am acceptable to God if I do these things, if I if I don't do these things, then I am acceptable to God. I'm welcomed by God. And so if this is our way of thinking about how God is, then we know what the rules are. We know what the six hundred and thirteen commandments are. But we better be careful to not even get close to those commandments. So we will make some additional commandments to kind of be a buffer, right? Right. Because we know ourselves, we're going to break a commandment now and again. So it might as well be like a secondary one, right? Because then I won't have broken the really bad one, and I'll still be acceptable to God. I know none of us think this way. None of us act this way. I'm reading this book by an author by the name of Scott McKnight. He, he, he writes this reflecting on his childhood growing up in the church. When I was a kid, I was taught often, that sex was a sin if you weren't married, which meant dancing was prohibited. (laughs) If that ruling about dancing isn't obvious to you, this is how it worked. The law was that premarital sex was sinful, and you can find this in the Bible if you dig around enough. Dancing, to begin with, involved listening to or singing along with music that had words written by God-forsaken, hip-slinging sinners like Elvis. He's dating himself a little bit here. On top of that, young adults, while listening to such words and dancing, would be touching a girl or a guy and holding them close, and that fired up one's sexual appetite. And the next thing after getting fired up was having sex. So dancing and sex were the same thing. We were suspicious about this argument because those who were telling us these things didn't even dance. So, how would they know? Didn't matter. They were the adults, and they said dancing led to sex, and therefore, we had a ruling. Do not dance. It was as authoritative as the Bible. I got to say, this makes a lot of sense. If we believe that we are acceptable to God by the rules we keep or the rules we don't break. Makes a lot of sense, actually. Jesus says, woe to you because you make these trivial religious rules. You add on to God's law. And in doing so, you actually obscure God's glory. Have you been in that environment before? Where the conversation is all about the the rule or the, the rules rule or the rules rules rule. The conversation is all about not dancing and why we don't dance and how we can actually dance if it's a square dance, but not if it's a whatever kind of dance. Conversation is not about the glory of God. It's not about the majesty of God. It's not about being in beautiful restored relationship with God who changes us from the inside out. It's about we know we go we don't do that. Woe to you, Jesus says. Number four, you miss God's entire trajectory of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You've lost the plot. Oh, you're good at tithing your spices. It's a funny image, isn't it? There's a Pharisee dressed up like a Pharisee, and he's kind of scraping out his dill and his mint and you know, making sure it's exactly 10%. And Jesus said, well, I mean, I guess that's okay. That's good. Thank you. But um, you're missing the entire trajectory of the law. That this is about justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is where God is taking the world. This is what God is up to in the world. And in becoming so focused on these things here, you've missed it. You've isolated yourselves from it. So you don't see the poor who are next to you. You don't see the foreigner in your land anymore. You don't see the widow putting in her little bit of money, her might at the temple. You don't even see her. God's entire trajectory of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you. Number five, you work hard to appear spiritual while ignoring your wicked hearts. They put a lot of effort into looking a certain way. And Jesus says the Pharisees, when they were fasting, they would make sure that they looked such that everybody knew they were fasting. It only counted, after all, if you could see it. Woe to you because you work so hard to look spiritual, but you ignore the condition of your hearts. Number six is similar. Woe to you, your skin-deep righteousness disguises your decaying soul. We've seen Jesus talk about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees throughout Matthew. This idea that we, we look righteous on the outside, and this is what makes us acceptable before God, and so it doesn't matter what's on the inside of us. This is not pretty language that Jesus uses in these two. You're, you're a cup that looks nice on the outside, but on the inside, how long has that been growing in there? What is that crusty stuff in there? You gonna drink out of this? I think that we see this skin-deep righteousness at, on display in our culture all the time. Remember, these religious leaders were also political leaders, and you can make the quick leap to our day and our age and our politicians, can't you? We have certain righteous expectations of our politicians. There are things that they can do and can't do. I'm not sure who came up with this list. They can get a lot of money from certain people. That's okay, but don't sleep with somebody who you're not married to. That's not okay. And for some reason, it's often those politicians who, who really like to put themselves above everybody else says, I get it. I've got my stuff together. This has been my wife for 30 years, and we are perfectly happy. And then, like, you you know, CNN, breaking news, some weird deviant thing, right? Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ah, the focus is on the skin-deep righteousness, how I appear, how I present myself to the world, while inside I'm decaying. Woe to you. Number seven, woe to you. You act like you would have been on God's side in the past while opposing God now. Again, Jesus is referencing these Old Testament prophets. He's done this repeatedly now. You, your, your forefathers, he said, they, 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 they killed the prophets. They, they persecuted the prophets. And you claim, Jesus says, that if you had lived in that day, oh, we would have been different. We would have known what God was. You know, the best example that I could think of for this is um, is the way that I think about myself when I look back on the history of civil rights in our country. And and to be honest, I, I would love to think that I would be in the minority of white men who would have said this is what God is doing in our world. Reconciliation, justice. The end of Jim Crow laws. Oh, I, I would love to think that if I had been there, I would have been one of the few that said, this is what God is doing in our day. And this is the Pharisees. Saying, oh, if we had been there, oh, we would have gotten it. We would have understood. We would have been different. And Jesus says, yes, but look at how you're living now remember john the baptist remember what you did to him who i called the greatest of all of god's prophets do you see how you're interacting with the very son of god the messiah you can't claim that you would have lived differently back then when you live this way now that's a heavy word for some of us it is for me We can't look back in history and say, this is how I would have been when the way we live now says otherwise. Amen? Amen. Is this heavy? Is this heavy? It's a little heavy, isn't it? I told you that I mean to encourage you, and I'm not giving up on that yet, so stay with me, please. Stay with me, please. We're in this last movement now. We saw saw Jesus being tested, the final tests by the religious leaders. We saw the the power dynamic shift so that the Son of God is now asking the questions. And now we see this justice and, and judgment for the religious leaders. In the tradition of the Jewish prophets, Jesus now pronounces judgment. This is what Old Testament prophets do. They pronounce judgment on those who are opposing God. It's a warning, an opportunity to turn around, to repent. In a world that too often inflicts death and destruction, Israel was lifted on eagle's wings to be a nation of priests pointing to the God of life. They were rescued from captivity for the purpose of displaying the glory of God to the world, to blessing the world. And now the Messiah has come. The Son of God stands before them and he exposes their hypocrisy. Though you were liberated to demonstrate God's glory, you've actually burdened people with a veneer of righteousness. A righteousness that actually obscures the way to the kingdom. And so just as Egypt experienced God's judgment when Israel was rescued, when they were liberated, so the religious leaders who burdened the people, who barred them from the kingdom, will now experience God's judgment as God offers liberation to the world. So we pause maybe for just a moment and and ask, Where are we in this story? Where where do we stand in this story? Where would have we stood in this story? Are we like the religious leaders? Have we presented views of God to our world that are burdensome and only skin deep? This is the words of judgment to the Pharisees. Your religion, your conversion is weighing people down. It's a religion of death that bars people from the kingdom. Through Jesus, the justice of God will now clear the way. Through Jesus, the justice of God will now clear the way so that every obstacle to God's liberating movement will be removed. This is what God does. God removes the obstacles. This is judgment. God removes the obstacles to God's freedom. This is judgment. And through Jesus, we see the justice of God on display. Just as God rescued the people of Israel in Jesus, God now rescues a new nation of priests for the purpose of showing God's glory to the world. Tyler, put up Revelation chapter 1. This is how uh, John begins his his letter, his apocalyptic letter to the seven churches after Jesus' ascension. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has and has... And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests. A kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Does it sound familiar to you? Does it sound familiar to you? This is God as an eagle sweeping down and rescuing God's people from Egypt. I have saved you. I have freed you. Why? So that you will bless the world, so that the world will know my glory, so that you will be a nation of priests. In Jesus, it has happened again. In Jesus, it has happened again, and it's for us. It's not that Jesus has come to one ethnicity, one nation, and said it will be you who does this work. Jesus, as we said last week, throws open the gates to the kingdom says, everyone, everyone is invited now to experience the freedom of God and be set free to demonstrate God's love, power, mission, justice, mercy, grace to the world. It's for us. A couple people saying amen. Amen? Yes. Now, look at verse 37 here. Let's move through our passage. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Now, you need to think uh, with your creative. What's the creative side of your head? The right side. Think with the right side of your head for a minute. Imagine what Jesus is saying here. I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. As God rescued Israelites like an eagle swooping down from the sky. Now the imagery shifts, it's no longer an eagle. It's a caring, protective mother hen with her chicks. And the imagery here, the imagery here is of a great fire. See, hens, if there's a fire in the barn or the hen house, hens often will spread their wings so that their chicks can find shelter under their wings. And the mother hen will absorb the fire, will give her life so that her chicks may possibly live. You see? This is the imagery here. Now, now, those of us who didn't grow up on farms, don't know hens, we don't think about this right away, but people in Jesus' day, this is what they're picturing. A mother hen, the threat of fire, spreading her wings, beckoning her chicks to, to, to take safety, knowing that her life will be lost in the process. You see? The fires of judgment, Jesus says, are coming. God has to remove everything that is in the way of entrance to the kingdom. Everything that is blocking those from freedom in Christ. That has to happen. But even with that, do you see, even with Jesus' incredibly harsh language, there is still hope. There's still hope for the Pharisees even. fire is coming but there is shelter to be found what does Jesus say what is, all that you must do is take shelter what's the way he says it all you must do is welcome he who comes in the name of the Lord all you need to do is welcome the Messiah of God who has come for your rescue and your liberation that's it There is shelter to be found. There is freedom and liberation to be found forever. Pharisees, Sadducees, even, woe to you, but even you have but to welcome he who comes in the name of the Lord, and you will be spared. There's a word for that it's called grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that even those who actively opposed the kingdom of heaven have opportunity for redemption and rescue and salvation. Is that good news? Oh, that's good news, church. Jesus bore the fires of judgment for our protection, but he also resurrected. Here's the thing. The hen dies, she gives her life for her chicks. Jesus died for us, hung on the cross, but resurrected. Jesus did not just offer us shelter from the coming judgment, he resurrected victoriously over everything that provoked the judgment in the first place. You see? everything behind every bit of wickedness, sin, and rebellion that provoked the judgment, that had to clear the way for freedom and entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus put that to death on the cross. Rose victorious over it. Amen? Are we getting to the encouraging part yet? I hope so. Like Israel carried on eagle's wings, we have been set free. We have been set free. Worship team, go ahead and come back on up. And just like Israel, we have been rescued. We have been set free from something, haven't we? I don't know your story. I don't know what you have been set free from. I don't know what you need to be set free from. But there's a from. There's a from. You've been set free from addiction. You've been set free from self-hatred. You've been set free from cycles of violence. You have been set free from despair. You've been set free from prejudice. You have been set free from dysfunction, from hypocrisy, from disease. You have been set free from self-righteousness, from legalism, You have been set free from something, from every bit of wickedness and rebellion, behind every bit of of, of burden, of slavery in your life. Jesus has set you free from that. Yes? And to something. The Israelites, they were rescued, they were liberated, they were freed to go to this land, flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. We have been set free from something, but to something. New life, as we've said repeatedly in the beautiful kingdom of heaven, where we have new names, where we have new identities, where we call Jesus Christ, the son of God, our brother, where Jesus says we have but one father, the creator of the universe. We've been set free from something. We've been set free to something. You know what I'm going to say? We've been set free for something. Yes? We have been set free for a purpose. As with Abraham, we have been set free to blast the world. As with the nation of Israel, we have been set free to be a nation of priests for the world. In the language of Jesus in our passage, we have been set free to love God and love our neighbors with our whole lives. Do you know what this means, church? This means that your life really, 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 really matters. This means that all of your life really, really, really matters. This means that where you live, where you work, where you spend your time, how you spend your money, who you're friends with, all of this deeply, deeply matters. Because all of you has been set free for the purpose of showing God's glory to the world. Can you do this at work? Yes. Can you do this at home in your family with your children? Yes. Can you do this on your block in your neighborhood with your neighbors? Yes. There is no place that the glory of God cannot be displayed through your life of freedom in Jesus. Yes. Yes. This is the encouraging word in the midst of judgment for us this morning. That we have a Savior who, like a mother hen, will spread her wings for the safety of her chicks, giving her life for them. We have a Savior who spread his arms for us on the cross. We would be sheltered from the coming. And more than that, our crucified Savior rose again, victorious over everything that put us in bondage in the first place, everything that that, that led us into slavery in the first place, victorious over this, the gospel. This is good news to you, church. I want you to come forward and feast on on, on, on the bread and the cup this morning. I want you to come forward with hopeful hearts this morning. I want you to remember that our lives were spared by a loving God who gave himself up for us. I want you to come forward and celebrate this morning as those who have been set free for a purpose way beyond ourselves, way bigger than ourselves break the bread you take that bread you dip it in the cup we remember jesus's death and his suffering we remember too that it is because of his death and his suffering and his resurrection that we are here this morning with new life and freedom it is because of his death and resurrection that you're going to walk out of here today knowing i've been called for a purpose That my job that I don't really like that much matters. That my marriage that's really hard right now matters. That my block, my neighborhood that seems to be going to hell right now matters. That my classroom that I can't understand where these students are going. Matters. Yes. So come forward this morning, break the bread, dip it in the cup and rejoice. And Jesus, you've been set free for a purpose that's way, 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 way beyond ourselves. I'm gonna invite our communion servers to come up and then just at your your convenience, I want you to come. I want you to come and take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. I want you to remember what it is that God has done for us. Got a few of our prayer team folks. Uh, Bethany is going to be up here this morning by the cross. If you'd like someone to pray this truth over you, child of God, set free for the purposes of God. Ask Bethany to pray for you. If there's an area of, of, of captivity in your life, right? Some of us hear these words and we want to be encouraged, but there is this thing in us that feels so tied up It was hard to receive these good news, words of freedom. Bethany, then he will pray for you about that as well. Let's pray. Uh, God, we come to you now as your grateful children. We come to you now as, as those who through your scriptures have been reminded that though judgment had to come to clear the way for relationship with you, for entrance to the kingdom of heaven, that even in the midst of judgment, there is always hope. And so we come this morning as those willing to say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is he who will always come in the name of the Lord. Holy Spirit, compel us to receive sacrament this morning with gratitude. Not because of ourselves, but because of you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Come forward. Come forward. Kelly's going to lead us in worship. Whenever you're ready, come forward and receive. Thank God for all that He has done for us. Lord, we thank You. We worship You. We glorify Your name. God, You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy worthy of all our adoration, of all our honor, of all our praise from now and for eternity. God, we lift You up. We worship You for who You are and for what You have done for us. Tyler, go ahead and put up the revelation passage again. I want this to be our benediction. We read this earlier. I want to send us out now under these words to the early church. I want us to say these together as in people who have been set free to demonstrate the glory of God to the world. Say this with me. Grace and peace to you. lunch afterwards if you want to join some folks for lunch if you didn't receive communion you want to afterwards if you want to come forward and be prayed for be happy to do that now go in peace freed people to show god's glory to the world amen